Our Untangled Minds by CUSM is for informational purposes only and does not constitute professional medical or psychological advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Please make sure if you do have any questions or concerns that are medical or psychological in nature that you seek out a physician or qualified mental health provider for further help. Furthermore, the information, viewpoints, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the views of the individuals that are involved. They do not represent absolute fact and are subject to change at any point in time. CUSM does not accept responsibility for these views. Lastly, the names and details of any medical stories shared in this episode have been edited for privacy. Welcome back to our Untangled Minds. I am your host today, Dr. V. Han. I'm also the Assistant Professor of Medical Education here at CUSM. I'm also an emergency medicine physician by trade. I also have a co-host with me today. We have the lovely Dr. Megan Dupper. She's the Associate Dean of Clinical Curriculum here, and she is also a family physician. However, we have a wonderful guest with us today. We have Dr. Debbie Craig. Hi, Dr. Craig. How are you? I'm just fine, thank you, and thank you so much for inviting me. We are so, so lucky to have you here today. Um, Dr. Craig actually is boarded here in both internal medicine and geriatric medicine, and she's also currently the internal medicine associate program director. So thank you so much, Debbie, for coming in today. Not only are we going to get to know Dr. Craig a little bit better today, the purpose of today's episode is that Dr. Craig is here to actually give advice to medical students on how to perform really well on your internal medicine third year clerkship rotation. But not only that, she's also going to give you some advice on how to do well in your sub-I as a fourth year medical student as well, too. So we're all excited to have her. You know, but before we dive into the details of all that, Dr. Dupper and I have been very excited to talk to you for the last two weeks. We've been talking a lot about it during our meetings, have we not? Yeah, we have. Yeah. And this is actually the most important question, I think, at least, of the entire interview, which is, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. I was raised in the Midwest. I came from a small town in Kansas, right on the Kansas-Oklahoma border. And I was one of those kids with asthma. And from Mm. a very early age, I was lucky enough to have a family medicine doctor who made house calls. And when we would have terrible asthma attacks, and there were two in our family that would, he would make house calls. And he came to the house with his, what did they call it, IPB machine and sub-Q epinephrine. And you got that burning shot in your arm, and you got a breathing treatment, and you could breathe again. And I determined from a very early age that that's what I was going to grow up and do. That's great. I was going to make little kids with asthma breathe again. That is such a sweet story. Yeah. I wish we did more house calls nowadays, huh? I got to do them in training, and they were one of my favorite things. Well, as I probably can go on to tell you, I didn't end up as a pediatrician. You mentioned that. I ended up as a geriatrician on the opposite end of the uh, spectrum, and I was lucky enough to make a few house calls. You know, that actually is a good kind of lead into our next question, too, which is what pointed you into that direction of internal medicine? Were there any experiences specifically in medical school that kind of drew you towards that specialty? Well, I learned very quickly in medical school that I did not have, I guess the technical term, guts Mm. for really, really sick children. It was just too painful. I knew that I could not take care of dying children. And I also knew that abused children would wear on my soul. So I found that internal medicine uh, drew me in and I loved loved, loved the geriatric patients that I saw in internal medicine. Now, 
in our podcast, people can't see my gray hair, and I do have some, and that puts me in the age category where the geriatric patient, when I was in medical school in my training, were World War II vets era, and they were just the most wonderful generation of people, and they had the most wonderful stories to tell, and I just loved it. Now, on a little bit on the lighter side, I was assigned... Uh, during a period of my training and shortly after finishing plain internal medicine, I was assigned employee health clinic at Loma Linda University. I gotcha. And I found that I did not do well with the worried well. For example, if someone came to my office and said, I moved rocks in my yard all weekend, and my back hurts. Sure. It drove me nuts. That's <laughs> fair. And I would say, did you try Advil? And they'd say, no. I'd say, try Advil. And they'd, I'd say, did you try heat? And they'd say, no. And I'd say, try heat. <laughs> and I found that I was not good at that. Gotcha. And so... I guess the two things really cemented that I was a geriatrician at heart. Beautiful answer. Yeah, I do agree with you. I think some of my scariest patients that I get in the emergency department generally are sick kids, and those are the ones that worry me the most. Um, Not only that, but they tend to hide pathology very well. They look very well, but they can sometimes be very sick. And I don't know if Dr. Darby, you agree with me or not on this? Absolutely. Just everything feels higher stakes, both emotionally, physiologically, and trying to talk parents through that is another aspect that was really hard for me. I agree completely. Absolutely, yeah. Correct, because you bring in that other dynamic, too. It's not just patients that you have to speak to sometimes, you know, or actually all the time with Mm -hmm. kids. You have to talk to the parents, too, and they're worried, and that's a whole other dynamic that you have to add to that patient-physician interaction as well, too. So let's move on. Were there any kind of roles or leadership positions you had in either medical school or residency that kind of helped pave the way into your decision to work with residents and medical students? Well, I was lucky enough to take a position right away after my residency Mm. and my extra year with some geriatric training to be in a situation where I was always exposed to residents and Uh. students. I have never practiced 100% without resident students. Hmm. So I guess it was just sort of a a natural happening in my life. And I can't imagine doing anything else. I can't imagine being a, quote, isolated physician somewhere Hmm. without the youngsters uh, (laughs) to keep me a little young and to challenge me and to let me learn about social things and Hmm. how, what, length of socks to wear with your shoes and, <laughs> and those kind of things. I don't know, Dr. Dupper, have you worked independently by yourself or have you always been with... Uh... No, I share that same uh, career path of always having had the benefit of working with learners, residents, students. In some ways, um, I describe it as never having a real job because I've always had something that gave meaning and purpose and a, a different day schedule. Um, mm. And I, I am the same. I can't imagine only seeing patients all day, every day. And I think that's part of the crisis we're having in medicine is the people doing that, seeing patients all day, every day, are becoming increasingly burned out and leaving the profession. You know, I'm actually on the opposite end of the spectrum. So I have worked mostly alone. <laughs> and I've been a nocturnist now, night ER doc for the last three and a half years now. And I can, I do... 
I do have to agree, it does get a little bit lonely. It is a lot of hustle and bustle. You just kind of just try to get things done, disposition patients as quickly as possible. And then when I took my job here with the medical students here, I think it definitely fulfilled that thing that I felt was missing. And I think education is what kind of made it great for me. So I realized what I was missing. So um, we're was, lucky to have you. I'm slow on the ball. You guys knocked it out of the park <laughs> right after training. And I decided to be by myself for so long. I got lucky. Well, I think your enthusiasm shows. And I've really appreciated getting to know you with the committee work and things we've done. Oh, well, thank you so much. I paid her to say that just halfway. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to dig deep now into the details. I think this is what all the medical students are going to be listening to intently now, which is what are some of the basic things that you look for in third-year medical students uh, when they're on your rotation? And then the follow-up question to that is, what are some of the things that they can do that would be kind of a step above the basic requirements during their internal medicine rotation? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit. Um, I'm going to separate it into two sure. groups. The first group, I guess I would call knowledge. And when I think about the knowledge that I believe third-year medical students should gain, that is the ability to take an excellent history from the patient and to do a complete physical exam and also begin to develop the assessments. And I sometimes draw it out for students and I draw an arrow pointed to the right, then mm -hmm. I draw a diamond, and then I draw on the other side of the diamond another arrow pointing to the right. And the first part of the arrow is the chief complaint. So I come into you and I give my chief complaint. At the moment that I give my chief complaint, your differential diagnosis expands exponentially. And then as you, as the excellent medical student, start to ask me more questions and do an appropriate physical examination, your differential diagnosis narrows. So now we're coming down the other slope of the diamond, and it meets in the assessment. So when I start out by telling you I have abdominal pain, it's your job to figure out which quadrant, what is the characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. You know all those where, what, when, why, how. Right. And then give back to me, the attending physician, three or four reasonable assessments. At that point in the third year, I don't expect you to have a plan solidified. Gotcha. I want you to start thinking about it, and the later it gets in the third year, mm -hmm. I want it to get better and better. I want it to get more efficient, more effective, more cost-effective, more evidence-based driven. But I really think the third year is to see as much as you can, talk to as many patients as you can, examine as many normal and abnormal bodies as you can. And I believe that's the sort of nuts and bolts of the knowledge side. The other side is the attitude side. And there's the good attitudes <laughs> and the bad attitudes. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I think from an attitude side, being interested, being curious, asking questions in the appropriate setting. I'll get back to that a little sure. bit later. <laughs> uh, a willingness to learn, a willingness to help are the things that I look for. I know it's the things our residents look for. You know, I wanted to kind of uh, extend upon that too, because I, I, and I think Dr. Darper, I think you would agree with this too, that 
Um, you know, the way that you broke it up into two ends um, is perfectly put because I think attitude does play a major role because I think some of the experiences that I've had with certain medical students, they can be A++ in the knowledge department. But if they're either rude, they come to work late all the time, they don't interact well with attendings or residents. I mean, that can almost be a complete 100% deal. I mean, you can figure out a cure for cancer, but if you can't work well with others, you can't seem to communicate well, right? I mean, I don't know if you both would agree with that, but if attitude is out the door, that's almost a deal breaker completely, regardless of how good your application looks, how good your letters are, right? Absolutely. Agreed. Probably yeah. you didn't actually cure cancer. You just yeah. think you did. <laughs> that's your attitude. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and to just add another anecdote to that, in the past, I've talked to several program directors who have said that they have matched students with really good step scores, really good letter recommendations, but just really poor attitudes. And they have repeatedly had said that these are some of their worst resins they've had because of the attitude issue. But they've said, you know, at the end of the day, even if you might not have the best scores, the best letters during applications, but you work really hard, you're kind, you care about your patients, like, it's our job in residency to train you as long as you have the basic core knowledge that you need, and you're willing to learn and work hard. Like, that's all that really matters at the end of the day. Absolutely. I mean, we would rather take take a student that is, you know, at the middle of the bell-shaped curve and even a little left of the bell-shaped sure, curve yeah. that has that attitude that's two standard deviations above the norm. I am willing to work. I want to work. I want to learn. And tell me how I can change and improve. Agreed. I guess now the second part of it is, is there anything that students can do their third year, at least we haven't gone on to fourth year yet. But is there anything that a third year medical student can do to kind of go above and beyond and maybe even shine above their peers at all? Well, I think there is. Uh, may I do a caveat first? Sure, absolutely. I think two caveats. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, I think the thing never, ever, ever to do while you're trying to shine is to throw your peers under the bus. And I hope I don't have to explain that analogy to anyone. (laughs) I'd say that's an extremely important caveat. Yeah. That is the fastest way to ruin your reputation, regardless of if you're in the 98th percentile on your uh, exam. And so that element of camaraderie and teamwork is critical. Now, I think within that attitude, you can also make yourself shine. You can study about patients on the entire team. You can ask questions in the appropriate setting Mm -hmm. about other students' patients. Gotcha. But you don't do that in front of the team, and you don't do that in front of the patient. Um, You can volunteer to help. I tell students all the time, that medicine is hierarchical. It is a ladder. There are people at the bottom of the ladder. There are people in the middle of the ladder, and there are people at the top of the ladder. Students, unfortunately, are at the bottom, and they will work their way up successfully. And sometimes being at the bottom of the ladder means, will you go to the fourth floor and get me a form? Will you walk to the front of the hospital and pick up the food that we ordered for everyone that is having a tougher time than you? And if you can do that with grace, 
instead of with complaint. That goes a long way because for that, you will get a resident that will teach you everything they know. And I think that just adds to the whole team dynamic and to, to kind of contribute what you can, uh, as much as you can. A funny story was when I was a third year med student on my surgery rotation in New York, it was my 24 hour call. And I remember it was 3am in the morning. And I think at that point, we've been up for close to 24 hours now. And I remember asking my, uh, my seniors, it was the surgery intern and the surgery chief who was there with me, asked them, are you guys hungry? And they're like, no, 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 we're not going to go get you to get food. And I remember just looking at them saying, please let me leave the hospital <laughs> and get you food. It's been 20 something hours. Again, we're not telling medical students to please go buy your residence food. That's not what we're saying. It is a, it is a secret benefit break. Are you sure? the one who go get the food. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but just to kind of reinforce what Debbie had said, which is that you, you do what you can and it's in the spirit of helping the team. Like that's generally what it is. And if your residents are well-fed, you're well-fed fed, you're going to take care of patients better, you're going to be more awake, yeah. uh, and overall team spirit is going to be up, right, Dr. Dupper? Can I take it one step further and say yeah. um, a controversial statement that you other individuals on the mic might even disagree with? There's no such thing as scut work. Mm-hmm. I hear from students frequently, well, I'm, I'm only being asked to go get those forms or make mm-hmm. the phone calls. Um, and my response is, that's medicine. Yeah, That's the amount of work and effort of pushing the boulder up the hill that we all do as a team. Yeah. And it's important, essential work. Yeah. I think it was a hard hurdle for me as a medical student to get over the fact that, no, it's not sexy all the time. You're not going to be using your stethoscope all the time. You're not going to be saving people with a giant needle running from across the room and doing the things that you, you may have thought that you were doing. Most of the work is paperwork and phone calls and trying to move that little bit and I I think that's a hard concept to learn and one that I'm frequently reminding myself and students. And let me add to that to say that uh, I'm sort of the mother of our group and as the mother of the group I have eyes in the back of my head (laughs) and lots of residents do too. So if you have two students and one is willing to go and get the form on the fourth floor that you need to get a patient discharged, and one is not, then you have a procedure to do. Guess which student is going to be invited? Now, I know that sounds a little bit manipulative, (laughs) but it's real life. It is. It's being part of the team. Mm you know, grabbing the forms. Again, you're right. It's part of medical care. I still grab forms. You know, if there is a patient, husband or wife at the bedside with the patient I'm seeing, I generally just ask them like, hey, do you want me to go to the cafeteria and grab something for you real quick? Those little things go a long, long way. So it's kind of just building that Rapport, um, trust. Yeah, trust, exactly. Any of it. Yeah, exactly. So, Dr. Craig, you're bringing up so many good points and so many. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. So many good points. Let's move on to, unless there's anything else that you wanted to add about third year? No, I think that's it. Okay. Um, I do think that the third year also is an opportunity to, to start thinking about the future. Um, which rotation did I have? fulfilled me? Which rotation did I have that my spouse or partner said, wow, you are so happy in the morning. You are so ready to go to work. That's great advice. You know, I'm, I'm one of those. I've had two major career changes, so I've done three separate but related things. And so I hate when 
you know, students kind of feel like they have to make one decision and it will only last the rest of their life, because that's not true. I mean, even in medicine, we have flexibility. Yeah. We have lots of roles to play. But I do think there's a little bit of, can I see myself doing this the rest of my life, that we should at least touch on when we're in the third year. Yeah, absolutely. That's really great advice. Actually, it's okay if I expand upon something that you said, Dr. Craig. The point about third-year medical students being good reporters, right? Being able to get a good history, a good physical, because I think often I get asked by medical students, what is it that I can do to go over and beyond? What is it that I can do to shine above? And sometimes I would just reply with, well, we just want you to focus first on making sure you ask about their allergies, their meds that they're on. <laughs> like, let's make sure that you can get the basics down first. And I agree with you 100% too, which is I don't expect a third year medical student to be able to relay to me a perfect assessment and plan. I think the bare minimum that we look for in third year medical students is just get us a complete history and physical. And I think. Now, again, you guys might disagree with this, but I I remember an attending telling me this when I was a third year who had said, you should know that person better than me because you have all the time at the bedside and you should be able to get all those details. Mm -hmm. So if you miss any of those, it means you probably have to reevaluate what it is about your patient conversation or your history gathering that you need to improve upon. And that's what we look for, right? Correct. I'd call that going above and beyond with the basics. Yeah. Do those completely. And I think uh, students forget sometimes that we're watching. And I don't Mm -hmm. say that in a negative way. I say that in a positive way as well. Sure, yeah. You know, one of the yardsticks of taking a history and doing a physical is how many times you have to go back to the patient and ask (laughs) the question you forgot. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I watch students and I listen to them. The way our program is set up on a call night we are together in a small space. Yeah. Uh, I listen to what people say. I watch to see how many times they leave the room. And the student that gets it all on the first time has arrived. Bravo. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. It's like you have won the prize. <laughs> you know, the student you have to send back to ask the allergy yeah. has not gotten it yet. All, all the students are going to write their notes in the hallway now. <laughs> I guess if they want to do it standing up, that's their privilege. (laughs) Although, to be fair, I did forget to ask my patient something last week, and I did have to go back. Oh, yeah. All the time. time. Um, Now, was there anything I said about perfection? (laughs) True. True, you did not. You did not. Um, This actually transitions us, rather, really well into our next question, which is, you know, we talk about third-year medical students being good reporters and making sure to take a good history and do a thorough physical exam. So I guess my next question to you, Dr. Craig, is when students finish their internal medicine third year clerkship, what is now different about their fourth year sub-I and what are the expectations now that you have of them? I think the expectation at that point is to very smoothly, seamlessly take the history and physical and then work on the accurate, accurate assessment and plan. Gotcha. And that is an individualized assessment, an individualized plan. It is not uh, throw up of the differential <laughs> diagnosis from Harrison's textbook of internal medicine. Theochromocytoma, right? <laughs> yeah. The 
scorpion bite that causes pancreatitis. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. <laughs> it was not your medical school at all, and yeah. I will not identify it, but <laughs> about two or three years ago, it seemed to me that there was a school that only taught the long, long, longer differential diagnosis of disease. And so the students would go down to the emergency room and see sort of our bread and butter type of patient with, you know, meth-induced cardiomyopathy mm-hmm. and come back and want to talk about, you know, some infectious disease of some small country in Africa oh, that had occurred in 40 patients. <laughs> Point missed. And finally, to one student, I said, do not, do not ever (laughs) talk to me about zebras again. (laughs) We are only talking about horses in this room. Yeah. I think that's another example of how not to make yourself look cool or to go above and beyond. We're not impressed when you know the random thing (laughs) if you can't also get the common, more likely thing first. Mm -hmm. Right, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, because sometimes students forget that they're not the only students there and obviously attendings and residents are busy and, you know, fourth year, you're kind of expected to kind of, you know, be at the next level, not just be able to get a good history and physical, but kind of also, at least from an ER standpoint, I don't know if you can also attest to this internal medicine, but also the flow of the department as well too. Mm -hmm. Last comment that I have to say, too, is an attending once told me, you know, physicians, we focus on horses, but you should just know the zebras, uh-huh. be able to identify them, but not necessarily think of them right away. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, they're fun to study about. Yeah. And they're fun to see. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I enjoy it myself, but uncommon things are uncommon and common things are common. Exactly. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to ask, too, is the patient load also goes up during your uh, your fourth year as well, too. Because I know, at least from an ER perspective, we do expect some of the medical students to pick up a few more patients. We, we always say pick up as many as you can so that you're still making sure that you can catch up and follow up on labs and imaging and disposition just enough so you're uncomfortable, but not so much that now you're falling behind the eight ball and the residents and the attendings have to pick up where you're off, correct? Correct. And we would like, you know, senior students to push themselves just a bit. Like you said, maybe being a bit uncomfortable is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And then is there a specific number that you're looking for for between third and fourth year or not really? No, not really. Gotcha. Again, it, you know, has to do with the acuity and, gotcha. and uh, sometimes continuity <clears throat> is better than picking up new patients. <clears throat> and sometimes uh, it's better to pick up some new patients and drop off some of the old patients for learning experience. Oh, that's very nice of you. Because I remember I was in med school. My residence like two as a third year, seven as a fourth year. I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> too many. But I do get what you mean by that, though, right? And I think Dr. Dubber too attested this too. Some of those patients that are in, on inpatient wards, there's not much that goes on from day to day. And sometimes some of the attendants would be like, you know what? Why don't you pick up this new admit last night, and you can learn from that. I, so I, I did sub eyes at ARMC when I was a fourth year medical student in Loma Linda. Most of them, I think I did one in family medicine. I think I did one in internal medicine too. I don't know. It was a very long time ago. Uh, the point of the story is that I carried the same number of patients on those teams that the interns did. It was a true sub-I and I really appreciated it. So my my first night on call as an intern for my family medicine residency, I had all of those skills. I was comfortable. I knew Got what it. to do. 
Um, and I got in trouble that morning huh. for admitting too many patients <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't know that there was a cap for interns. <laughs> and I had admitted, I think it was twice as many patients as I was supposed to have done. And I was I was genuinely shocked because I'd been trained and had the skills to be able to do that. So beyond mm. the expectation and how to impress your clerkship director, it, it does genuinely make you feel better on those terrifying first nights of being on call. Well, you know, and I, I tell people, I mean, I tell students and residents who sit in my office that professionally, I believe the two scariest days of your life are the first day that you're an intern mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the first day you're attending. Oh, cool. And yeah. to yes. prepare for the first day as an intern, again, see more, touch more, yeah. do more, read more, ask more questions. And uh, the ER must have really loved you, Dr. Duff. You've admitted <laughs> all those patients that they called you about. I don't think anyone loved me, but yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I worked uh, what I thought was an appropriate pace, but my residency was very nice and generous. So, <laughs> plug well, for my residency. Kind of going back to the sure. the subject we were on just mm -hmm. a minute ago, I'll have to tell you a little anecdote from yeah. my own internship. Um, I started at the old Riverside County Hospital, mm -hmm. which um, actually I was telling a group of students that the sleeping rooms were on a unit that had been condemned. <laughs> and we loved it because they put in window air conditioners mm -hmm. in our sleeping rooms. Nice. And it was the yeah. only place in the hospital that was air conditioned. Yeah. Oh, wow. So we didn't care. And let me tell you, we didn't complain either. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I uh, rotated with... Um, a gentleman who was doing one year in internal medicine, I was a three-year program, and he was very unhappy in internal medicine. And one day in a session with the department chair, he raises his hand and says, if my patient doesn't make progress today, do I have to write a progress note? <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. I don't think I'll ever forget that as long as I live. Now, I could mention that he's a famous dermatologist, <laughs> but I probably shouldn't. <laughs> the chair was in the room? Oh, boy. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, maybe I might admit that that thought has silently crossed my mind. <laughs> oh, man. It's funny. You know, speaking of things that you shouldn't do, you had mentioned earlier not to throw your cohorts under the bus during your rotation. And a lot of the students wanted me to ask this, which is, what are some definite no-nos? Is there anything else beyond that you can think of maybe not to do on your internal medicine rotation? I think the biggest no-no in medicine is dishonesty. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Agreed. If Absolutely. you don't know, say you don't know. If you didn't do it, say, I didn't do it, but tomorrow make sure you did. If you don't know the answer, don't make one up. Because if you ever start cutting the first corner, you will cut more. It's kind of easy. I've seen it done too many times yeah. when the attending says, what were the finger sticks yesterday? And could be the resident could be the intern, be the student, says, well, they were in the 200s. That's a pretty good guess. 
And sometimes that's easier to say than I did not check, but tomorrow I will absolutely check. Those are the one, maybe two times in my career as a student resident and attending, I think it happened maybe once, where I actually stepped in and did, from some perspectives, throw that person under the bus because of a safety concern Mm -hmm. to say, no, that number was this. And Mm -hmm. it was a really difficult spot to be in. And it took me, I did not do it as a third year, I think probably not till intern, to step in and say, no, that's, you you read that wrong (laughs) and try to at least give them the benefit of the doubt in the moment. But because the attending needs the correct information to be able to formulate the plan and to supervise the care, you can't let that one slide. Absolutely. And yet again, that can be done in the appropriate setting. Correct. Um, you know, for example, that's probably never a good idea for any of us to do in front of a patient. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Wherever you are on the ladder <laughs> of life. <laughs> yes. Again, that goes back to that part of the discussion where taking a good history and physical, which, again, we promise you because you didn't ask it, you're not in trouble. It is better to just say, hey, I'm sorry I didn't ask that. Let me go back and get that piece of information for you, right? Yeah. And and the other thing that, that I teach, you know, going back to that a little bit more is get used to asking the same questions in the same order every time. Yeah. Good advice. Absolutely. Past medical history, past surgical history, mm-hmm. gynecologic history. How do you ask your social history? How do you ask your medication history? But do it every single time in the same order. And then you won't have these gaps. Yeah. But this also comes to orders as well, too, making sure that you guys order, you know, you always got to think about hematologic studies, right? Chemistry is next, you know, special orders, whether that be VBG, AVG, troponin, whatever that might be. Because if you go in that order, you're not going to miss that test. And uh, I remember as a resident, I struggled with that a lot because I would jump all over the place. And I remember an attending gave me that advice. He says, hey, you ask your history the same way every time. You should look at your studies and your imaging the same exact way so you don't miss. And my biggest one that I would always miss when I was an intern was that beta ACG. (laughs) Always miss that beta ACG. And then subsequently would miss the ABORH. For those of you that are listening, all our medical students, make sure, and we tell you this for reasons because we've been through this before, which is make sure that you do things in a very systematic manner so that you don't forget and that you're thorough. And that brings up a point that I'd like to make mm-hmm. because I often have residents in my office saying, you know, what makes the great resident? Well, the mm-hmm. same is the question for students. What mm-hmm. makes a great you know, internal medicine student? And it touches on what you just said, and that is organization. Yeah. I'm an internal medicine snob. <laughs> now, you know, if if I weren't so cheap, I would buy one of those vanity license plates that says real doctor. <laughs> and well, note, I, note for thank you gift. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just getting ready to apologize yeah. to uh, both of you. <laughs> I hope you know me well enough to forgive me. Um, I'll gladly give you the title. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, part of an internist is organization mm-hmm. of data. Now, yeah. it's also important in, you know, family medicine and emergency medicine sure. and whatever yeah. else. But I actually just told this story to one of my students in the last 48 hours when they asked me part of how I decided to be an internist. And when I was a 
early fourth year medical student, I had the privilege of being on a rotation with a nephrologist, and we didn't have any residents. It was students and a nephrology attending. Cool. He went on to be chief of medicine, actually, at the White Memorial Hospital. Um, I might tell you, too, uh, this is a side note, that it was the first time I'd ever been in a Mercedes Benz. (laughs) (laughs) We went from one hospital to another, and this kid from Kansas got in a Mercedes Benz. (laughs) But his name was uh, Jim Drinkard. I don't think that is... uh, against our policy. (laughs) He was uh, just wonderful. And we had a patient the entire month that had renal failure and Crohn's disease. Mm -hmm. And every day, this was in the early days of TPN, and every day we would um, measure the output of some of her enterocutaneous fistulas, Mm -hmm. and we would look at her dialysis schedule and we would decide what TPN formula we wanted to give her that day. And every single day we would do that and we would have a page of orders and we would have a page of her progress note. And every single day the surgeons would come by and they would write post-op day 37, (laughs) febrile, (laughs) rouse, TTP, um, impression, post-op day 37, a plan, see tomorrow. <laughs> I, I'm not exaggerating I much. Not. Yeah. Not, I'm really yeah. not exaggerating yeah. much. I've yeah. seen that note. And <laughs> I just thought, I can't do this. I, I'm the data-driven, you know, what, what is the phosphate? Right. <laughs> Yeah. So <laughs> on my better days, I'm jealous of the note. <laughs> I get to write. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. I have to bring this up because I think it's a funny story. But when I was on one of my rotations as a third year, and I was at a um, community hospital out in Queens, my job specifically for the internal medicine team that every afternoon was to follow up on the consult notes because there weren't any electronic medical records where I was in that community hospital. And my job was to literally look at all the consultants' notes on this one particular patient. And the reason that was my sole job for the team was because we could not read any of the consultants' <laughs> handwritings. So I would have to, so I had to learn whose chicken scratch belonged to who, yeah. and then formally call them to have them only to say, "Did you not read my note?" No. <laughs> That was a fun Poor time. little med student V. I know. But to be fair, I learned a lot because I get to talk to the consultant yeah. and they taught me a little bit That's and I true. got to ask them questions. So it actually worked out really well. It's, I loved my internal medicine. It's good non scut work. Correct. Correct. I learned. <laughs> you mentioned hierarchy. I had this question asked of me, or not asked of me, but rather I heard this question when I was on my internal medicine rotation where some of the interns where I was at was kind of complaining to each other, not to their to senior, but like, man, why is it that we have to write all the notes, put all the orders in, you know, put all this stuff, do all the discharge summaries, et cetera, et cetera. And at the time, I didn't appreciate it. But now as an attending, I totally get it because it's you have to repeat it you have to do it because it ingrains it into your memory you know what the admin orders look like you know how to write a discharge summary so it's not that we're purposely torturing you right dr Crank? that is exactly right yeah. and 
you know, let me just make a plug for um, the discharge summary sure. and the transfer summary, which, you know, we let our third year medical students be involved in. Ah, now, that is a perk. Yeah. And, you know, think of this as, as a do unto others uh, principle. Yeah. When you send the patient out to their next provider with an excellent summary, that ensures they're going to get good care. Yeah, absolutely. And in that summary, put anything that you would want to know as the next provider. You don't care if on day three you change the IV fluids from normal saline to half normal. No, no, I do not. Yeah. <laughs> but if you found a subcentimeter lung nodule that needs a six-month follow-up mm -hmm. on the CT scan, you want to know that. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, you know, it, it goes back to, you know, sort of the professionalism and the pride that that we need to take on as physicians. Yeah. And we need to do our very, very best for each and every patient. And that that is such a broad range of of work, um, in the best sense of the word, not not in the very bad sense of the word, mm -hmm. but but it is a process, it's a product, um, and it's and it's human. Well said. I'm loving our conversation. I went completely off script. I didn't even, <laughs> I just didn't even follow our, our questions. Um, I guess I should ask this one because it does pertain to the fourth year thing and as well as third years, but a lot of the students want to kind of know what is it that you focus on when you're writing letters of recommendation? I think that's a very good question. You know, from where I sit, I have read literally tens of thousands of letters of mm -hmm. recommendation. I wish there were a way, an easy way, to steer students away from canned letters, but there's no real easy professional way to do that. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's not professional for me to say Dr. X from Y institution writes mm. canned letters, and sometimes he or she mixes up your sex oh, yeah, and yeah, forgets yeah. to even change him to her. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that a student should be um, aware, for lack of a better term, of attendings that they're connecting with. If you find yourself on a service and you feel that you and your attending are getting along very well, that he or she is interested in you, um, that you are trying your very best to go above and beyond, Talk to that attending right mm -hmm. up front, early on. And even if you're not going into that subspecialty or specialty, believe it or not, you know, we understand that <laughs> not everybody goes into medicine. Yeah. We're sad about it, but we understand it. <laughs> um, you know, it's okay for a student to come to me, in, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of week one and say, I have, I'm having a great time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I love working with these residents. The team is going well. You know, my hope is to be an emergency room doctor, a family medicine doctor. But if I perform well, would you consider writing me a letter of recommendation? And then I know to pay attention. Now, on a little more personal side, I believe that uh, it's best to either meet uh, with your letter writer, if possible, and give them your CV give them your personal statement, 
and let them know a little bit about you. Now, I'm sure the students know some of this, but actually they might not know that there's a very long list of politically correct issues that we are not supposed to ask about in an interview. Correct. However, if it's in the personal statement, if it's in your letter writer's letter about you, then it becomes something you can talk about. So if you're a newlywed and you've told me that and you tell me a little bit about your story and I write that in your personal letter because I only write personalized letters. I don't write a ton of letters, but the ones I do are good letters. Yeah. And I'm going to say that patting myself on the back. <laughs> of course. Um, but if you tell me you just had twins and it's the most tiring thing, but the greatest thing that's ever happened to you, then when you sit in front of a program director, he or she can talk about it. If you say family's important to me and I want to be in Southern California because my family's there, I can say, oh, your parents live in the area. If spirituality is important to you, and you've gone on a mission trip, and you tell me all about it, and I write about it in your letter, and you've written about it in your personal statement, I can discuss your spirituality. I can discuss your mission trip. If LGBTQ is a descriptor of you or something very important to you, and you've volunteered in those organizations, or that's the reality you live, and you tell me about it, and we all write about it, then I can talk to you about it. And so my goal, and then would be my plea to my colleagues, is write a letter that lets the student shine, lets the student um, give more information about what makes them unique. Absolutely. I love that advice. Yeah. And and I think with me, when I approach a letter of recommendations, it's very similar to you. It's kind of what motivates them, what drives them. And I also like to try to include as many personal experiences that I've had with them as well, too, in a clinical setting. I think that empowers the letter much more, and it gives very specific examples that proves their leadership that I have witnessed myself. And is that something that you both do as well, too? Yeah, I do. I, I completely agree with you about this definition of sort of canned letters and how to yeah. try and make... Um, a student not just be a set of numbers and honors grades to make mm -hmm. them have a human dimension that medicine, for the most part, tries to beat out of them. Mm -hmm. um, and to bring that back in a letter is my my goal. Yeah. Um, and wherever possible, sit down and have that conversation or at least a phone call to try and yeah. increase You know, that. and on the flip side of that, um, I would hope that a student would be in tune with, say, an attending or a rotation that they did not perform as well <laughs> and right. would not ask that person right. for a letter. Uh, there's a famous internist, uh, she's probably retired now, but she used to talk a lot about uh, mm -hmm. letters of recommendation, and she called it damning with faint praise. And that would be the letter that said the patient did not, s I mean, sorry, the student was on time <laughs> and did not smell. <laughs> we, we all can read between those lines. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, Adult learners are notoriously bad self-appraisers. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, I think that just being self-aware is important. Oh, yeah. absolutely. 
Absolutely. You know, I, I wanted to actually extend this a little bit, and it's not in the question list, but I, I was wondering if you two can also offer some further advice on this. But a lot of medical students often ask me, how can you tell if your letter writer is going to be a good writer? And my advice has always been, I'm not sure. You kind of just know, <laughs> right, with your interactions with them, because you kind of can tell which attendings are very pro-med student. I'm here for your learning. I'm going to protect your time. I'm going to do what I can to help you out. And the ones that are just kind of just there, if I guess, is that what I'm trying? I don't know. Do you agree? Disagree? I have to agree uh, that um, unfortunately, I, I hope it happens very, very infrequently yeah. that students run into the attending that's just there. But I do think that you know, students should be aware of, of the attending that goes the extra mile. And if the student has received a good course evaluation, it's very likely that that is going to uh, be um, a good letter. Right. If you know, they've received a mediocre um, evaluation, that's mm -hmm. probably not the person that I would ask. Yeah. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you personally about this because I don't have an answer for our medical students regarding this, but um, how do you get more face time with the attending on internal medicine? Because I think with ER, it's easy because they get paired with us directly. But sometimes I remember when I was on my internal medicine rotation when I was a third year, I honestly just didn't get that much face time with my attending. He would show up in the morning, we would do rounds, and then in the afternoon, he would have to basically go take care of another service. And then it was just me and the senior resident and the second year and then the intern. So do you have any advice on that at all? Well, I think one way to help with that, mm -hmm. um, at least in our system, is to ask questions. I mean, and that, that does two things. It obviously gives you face time, but it shows your interest. Mm -hmm. And then the way that we're set up is our call days. There are a lot of opportunities for the residents and the students to have face time with the attending. Mm. Take advantage of that. Ah, uh, gotcha. Dr. Craig, may I present this patient to you? Oh, I, I was just going to say that that's, that's how I know if it's a good letter writer. So the mm. attending that's around and that is available and, and gives you um, the opportunity to ask those questions and to have FaceTime with them and make themselves available is the attending I would ask a letter from. And I would even take a step further and, and say, ask, ask, um, you know, I'm really interested in a letter. Um, do you have a process that you'd like me to follow? Would you like to meet? I'd be happy to give you my CV. And if the response is, no, it's fine, whatever, I'll send you one. You might not want to follow up on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whereas yeah. the attending that has a process asks to meet with you, you can tell that that's going to be a strong letter. Um, beyond even, we, we, I think the, the canned advice is ask if they can write you a strong letter, but the response is actually much more meaningful to the, than the question to mm -hmm. me. Yeah, that's great advice. I wish I had that advice when I was a med student. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard this throughout kind of the EM world, and I was kind of curious from you two. Is letter fatigue a real thing? Because we, we've had this question here from some of the third years, which is, you know, I only have three letters, but they're really, really strong letters. Should I try to seek out a fourth? Like, what's your, do you have any advice on that? I think three letters is adequate. Okay. You know, if somebody's going to choose three letters, I think two letters from people in their chosen field, and then a letter from someone else mm -hmm. if they know you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you've rotated with them, if you've done a great job. I mean, we often get in internal medicine, we often get excellent letters from our family medicine colleague Absolutely. because our students spend, you know, a good deal of time there. And if Dr. Lanham, the chair, writes you an excellent personal letter, 
Now, that's just as good as another internal medicine colleague writing that letter. And Dr. Dupper, do you have any... Can I ask a slightly off-topic question? Yeah, Since absolutely. that's the way the session is going. Yeah, I love it. Um, I feel like a few times we've we've talked about different ways that other specialties can have crossover support for a student's career. We've talked about um, experiencing the rotation from different perspectives, being a resident that's just there for a year, and how you, you experience that <laughs> yeah. differently than than a categorical resident, but or or even this idea of letter writing itself, but. And that's a question I've had every single year of being at all involved with students, even as a resident. How do you respond to a student who says, I'm not interested in family medicine, so can I go study now? <laughs> or I, I, or in my office saying to me, and I, again, I've had this every year, um, I'm having a really hard time faking being interested because I'm not interested. Um and I have a few different ways that I've tried to approach that conversation before, but I'd be really curious yeah. to see how you respond to that. Well, it goes back to my vanity plate <laughs> of internal medicine snob. Um, I try to convince every student, and you know, it's the 80-20 rule, um, that internal medicine, and, and I would say family medicine as well. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, I'm not going to give I it. Know. Uh, <laughs> I know. I see the look on your face. It's okay. Um, is the base of knowledge yeah. on which every specialty um, builds. And so there's nothing that you can learn in internal medicine that will be wasted when mm -hmm. you become an ophthalmologist, because mm -hmm. what's the major cause of blindness in America? Diabetes. Mm -hmm. Or the dermatologist, or the radiologist, or whatever you become, you have a base of medicine. Yeah. And some of the best subspecialty or specialty residents I've ever encountered took a year of medicine back when they had, what did they call it, category? Uh, or a, a generalized transition year transition yeah. yeah and you know i i at one time met three obgyn residents mm -hmm. who had all three taken one year of medicine before they entered yeah. obgyn best residents i've ever met wow took care of all their own hypertension, all their own diabetes, all their own medical education. Wow. Everything. Yeah. And so I guess I have it easier than maybe, you know, I hated my orthopedic rotation. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Um, I, I was shyer then and yeah. probably didn't say, can I go study? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, people are less shy now. <laughs> and... So from a medicine point of view, you know, I, I try to draw my upside down pyramid yeah. for them and, and say, you know, take patient down here and expand it. Yeah. Right. And it will cross over your desired specialty somewhere. Okay. Um, I have plenty of those moments now, even as an attending, just looking back at all the other rotations. Every patient I've seen, I can always think back to, 
hey, I remember that rotation I was on and I'm glad I paid attention or I saw that patient and that attending or that resonance voice, you know, comes into my head to, hey, do this. Don't forget we did that. Mm -hmm. So I'm still surprised even five years now into my career where I'm like, man, I'm glad I was there and uh-huh. I just wasn't reading a book, you know? Uh-huh. Uh. Yeah, I think there's, it's, it's to me, it has the same flavor of fallacy of, of, of labeling something Scott work, this idea that there's nothing you can learn from a specialty that you're not going into yeah. um, has shades of that attitude that I would label as the bad attitude mm-hmm. to, yeah. to recognize that you can learn from every single experience, no matter the attending's specialty. And it's the really little important. old person that you see in the emergency room that fell down, mm-hmm. I still remember the hip fracture and mm-hmm. the rotated shortened leg. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now let's call it ortho. Okay, with that yes. being said. <laughs> You know, I get this question a lot too, which is a lot of the M1s and M2s will always ask me, for those specifically interested in EM, they'll be like, hey, what can I do now as, you know, a first or second year medical student prepare myself to be successful in EM? And I tell them the same thing every time. And this might be a repetitive question, but I always say, learn how to get a history and physical and just make sure you study. And because there, there's a lot of emphasis, and I think Dr. Dupper can agree with this, which is everyone always wants to ask us like, hey, so what kind of... 10 different publications must I get in order to match? And I'm like, well, hold your horses. I remember you forgot to ask me what alleviating exacerbating factors for chest pain was last week. We got to focus on your clinical skills first, right? Well, you were kind enough to send me a little outline of of some of the questions you were going to ask, and I do appreciate that. And just let me, uh, I'll just read my note from this. My note from this question was, Book learning is not as much fun, but it is critical. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, and I've had this fun discussion with Dr. Green, and I know he's not here to defend himself. uh, (laughs) You know, just journey on. But, you know, he for uh, two years told me that he was going to send me medical students that were the best in the world and were 100% prepared to do everything right on day one. And I said, I guess you can go ahead, (laughs) but A, ain't going to happen, and B, it's our job to teach them how to be third-year medical students. That's what we're here for. That's what we want to do. And it's your job to give them the baseline knowledge yeah. So that when they come to the bedside, their knowledge collides with clinical and we move on. Absolutely. And so um, I don't have any, you know, great expectations mm-hmm. of what a third year medical student should be on day one, except that they have a decent knowledge and you have to get it out of books and yeah. off the computer of of basic science. Yeah. And uh, don't forget attitude too, guys. We mentioned that earlier. Don't forget <laughs> uh-huh. attitude. Yeah. Your, your, uh, your ratio from attitude and knowledge should start to equalize towards the end of the year, but, uh, uh-huh. but there should be a greater disparity with really good attitude at the beginning. And then you'll slowly accumulate the knowledge later, right? Yeah. I guess more pertinent maybe to third years, but a lot of them had asked me what kind of resources do you personally recommend for um, comprehensive disease management within internal medicine? What kind of the go-tos do you have? Well, um, not Harrison's textbook (laughs) of internal medicine. 
I don't know how many pages it's up to now. When I was an intern, it was 1,300 pages, and we were expected to get through it twice. Twice? In our three years. Man. Yeah. And I have sat in meetings multiple times and made the argument that that's no longer possible to get through Harrison. Yeah. So ditch Harrison's if you ever thought about it. Yeah. I will be keeping my copy because Dr. Fauci's name is <laughs> on it as the first editor. Oh, nice. So I will be gripping it, you know, to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I know we can get her now for her birthday. We should get Dr. Fauci to sign that copy. Oh, oh. I was going to say the Fauci bobblehead. But okay. Oh, that, okay, that works too. Yeah, that works too. Hey, and my birthday's coming up. So She's writing it down. I'm all in. She's writing it down. But I would... Um, I would get a review book of some kind. Sure, yeah. You know, Mayo Clinic writes a internal medicine review book. Uh, Cecil's, which is British, uh, has a Cecil's Essentials mm-hmm. of Internal Medicine. That was my that's, favorite. That's easy to read mm-hmm. and you know doable. That's um, what I need. Even the <laughs> you know the, even the Step Up to Medicine um, mm-hmm. is a good resource. There's a pocket book called. Is it the it's, green one? Yes. Yeah. Well, no, it's a new color. Oh, now. it's a new color now. I'm sorry. <laughs> Shows, yeah, last time I opened that thing. Green, green owl. Yeah. Um, and if you're young enough to be able to read print that <laughs> small, um, people love it. And and yeah. it is. It's yeah. you know it's a how to work up common medical problems. Yeah. yeah. Hypercalcemia, hypokalemia. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have that, this is the step. Yeah. My book, when I open it, it says consult medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The other thing I wanted to add to to the third years is don't forget that, you know, what worked for me too as as a resident, even as a medical student, to be honest, is the patients that you had that day, and you will often hear this and it'll be a broken record, but honestly, go home and read about your patients. It will stick longer. Do you both agree on that? Uh, the only small asterisk I would give is sure. that I, whenever I got home, I was too tired to do anything. Fair. So Fair. <laughs> um, I actually try to integrate some of those readings in opportune moments. Oh, yeah. Um, if a resident said a word that I didn't know what that word was, mm-hmm. um, I would try and find it on my quick break or in between something. Um and then the, the further caveat to that is you don't want to look disengaged because you're sitting there reading. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. So say to your attending, hey, I, I'm just going to read about this really quick before I present to you. Is that okay? Um, or, or some way for me to immediately tag the information to the patient that I was seeing. Cause yeah. It was probably just my level of burnout or attention span, but even some some days, not every day, if I waited mm-hmm. to the end of the day, I, my mind was blank and I just needed to yeah. go to bed. And I'm, I'm going to say something that's going to date me now that uh, <laughs> um, you reminded me of, and that is even if you hear something on rounds that you don't know anything about, don't whip out your cell phone oh, yeah. and look it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. We all know that that's very, very tempting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, put yourself in the place of the patient. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what would you think? Yeah. I recently switched to having my pregnancy wheel uh on my phone instead of in my pocket because I kept losing the, the paper <laughs> wheel. <laughs> um, and and I so I pull my phone out with a patient and say, 
I promise you I'm not texting. (laughs) Your pregnancy calculation is here on my phone. And I show them. Because if I don't, and you can see it in their face, as soon as you reach into your pocket and pull it out, the assumption is you're checking the weather or whatever text message you got. And a simple statement of, I promise you I'm not texting, showing them the pregnancy wheel does wonders. And I think it applies to no matter who you're in the room with, the attending, the resident. I've had lots of uh, written evaluations saying student was always on their phone. (laughs) (laughs) And when I check in with the student, what were you doing? I was reading. I was looking up what they were talking about. I'm looking at Wells criteria. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, Which is a plug for actually, um, I have in many cases recommended recently people get the hard copy books that fit Mm. in the pockets for that exact reason, to cut down on some of that confusion about or or the negative assumptions that we have against students. Or even, you know, we now have a tablet for each team. And, you know, we can use the tablet to show you why your gallstone stuck there <laughs> is yeah. causing a problem. But it's very much like you said, involve the patient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I am going to whip out my tablet. I am going to log on, and I'm going to show you a picture of your problem. And that's a lot different than sitting there with your phone in the back of a large group. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's great advice. Even just, again, even during rounds, whipping out any references that you may have, burying your head in your in your reference book, sometimes, again, we don't know exactly what you're reading about or what it is, or maybe you just might be kind of dozing off or maybe thinking about something completely different. Mm-hmm. Advice I always say is just make sure that you look like you're paying attention. If you want to look something up, that's completely okay, but maybe just listen for that patient presentation because you can learn something from there. They're going to be teaching you about something. They're going to yeah. probably ask something. Write it down, whatever it is that you want to look up, and then look it up after rounds. You don't have to necessarily do it at that exact moment. One other thing I wanted to talk about too was doing rounds and and I do this with uh, my group too in Big Bear is when we teach, we ask questions and a lot of the students look at that as we're trying to pimp them. I always tell my students it's a safe learning environment. I'm <laughs> only asking not to make you look bad, but really it's our job to teach you medicine. We know your third years. I just want to know where your knowledge base is because mm-hmm. if I'm asking multiple Let's say if I ask a really difficult question, I'm going to back it up and start using the Socratic method, slowly trying to help you get to that answer. But if I'm asking four to five questions and you're not getting it, that's just a sign to me that, okay, maybe I'm asking me too advanced of a question and I might need to go back and teach something else. But there's a reason to why we're asking these questions. It's not to make you look bad. Um, and it's okay to say, I'm not sure what the answer is, but it's okay if you say, let me just find that out. Maybe I can present something to you later, right, Dr. Craig? Like that's well, a- absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a very, very good way to show interest and, yeah. in, you know, and enthusiasm. The other thing is I try to make it a safe environment by if there's a little bit of gap, say, you can phone a friend. Sure. Oh, that's a nice so, one. Yeah. You know, you have an intern in the room. You have a resident in the room. Yeah. And I hope that most of the time I sort of use the, what do you think is next? Yeah. Or what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Or... What, what test have you thought about for this particular yeah. disease process? And, and make it less of a individual, one perfect answer. Right. Like, guess what the attending's thinking kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> you give them the, the room and the space to kind of participate. Yeah. And, and I guess I, my own personal bias is that I want to model how to treat the patient. And so I spend a little bit more time on what I call the softer side of medicine. Um, 
and I've struggled with with residents. Um, I had a resident not long ago that uh, f- forgot please and thank yous. You know, forgot that basic. Uh, when do we learn that? Kindergarten, first grade, at home before we go. My three-year-old does it pretty well. Um, <laughs> you know that uh, when the phone rings, you say hello. Right. Uh, this Not is what. This is what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if you asked me directly if it was that bad, I would say yes. <laughs> but you didn't Aww. ask me directly. <laughs> But, you know, this is Team F. How can I help you? And sometimes that's more important than a odd differential diagnosis or a side effect of high-dose medicine X. Making sure that reminds students and residents is just make sure you use the patient's name during the conversation, right? Like, hi, Deborah, or hi, Jack, how are you doing? You know, personalizing that interaction and working on that patient rapport. It's little things like that that matter, so I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I don't know about you two, but I would almost predict that I'll finish my career in a mask. And because of that, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that. I think we have to acknowledge what it does. Yeah. And as one of my excellent residents said to a patient, we have to learn to smile with our eyes. Schmeiß. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that this cohort of students, you know, have been through something that other cohorts have mm-hmm. not been through. I think they've tried to make the very best of it. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of them. Me but too. there are some ongoing issues and yeah. communication in the mask with the sick patient, with the stressed patient, with the anxious patient, yeah. with the depressed patient is something that we all have to uh, yeah. work on. We yeah. weren't very good at it in the first place. Hopefully yeah. now we'll actually pay attention and get better at it. Yeah. Can I tell you a funny story? Absolutely. So, <laughs> you know, obviously we're all in our PPE when we're at work and we have our face shields on. And then our ER started taking on what other ERs were doing, which were we were pasting um, our pictures on our chest. And one of the attendings happened to put his picture on there too but the funny thing was the picture that he had on his chest was of him wearing PPE (laughs) I'm like you know that defeats the entire purpose of why we're doing this right I just thought that was funny (laughs) you know I've enjoyed this conversation so much that we went way past our time limit but I love it and I think the the students will too Uh, but I think we're going to go into the lighter part towards the end of our interview now which is the rapid fire questions which we did not send you questions on but they're fun light and easy questions Um, they don't have to be rapid you can give us long answers if you want because Dr. Dupper and I and I'm sure the students would always love to learn more about you but are you ready? (laughs) <laughs> uh, it starts easy and then it ends easy too so don't worry what okay. happens in the middle <laughs> that's where it gets hard okay first question if you could have any superpower in the world what would it be and why i thought you said this started easy <laughs> um magic pain control Oh, that is a good one. That is a really good one. That is a good one. Because it would also come with infinite wealth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm stealing that one. I am stealing that one. Except clearly you were were thinking more magnanimously than I was. (laughs) (laughs) All right, next question. Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks? Starbucks. Okay. At Starbucks, what is your coffee drink order? Two shots of caramel regular coffee. 
Do you know why I asked that? So that the med students and residents know how to get your coffee order correctly. <laughs> you hear that, med students? Okay, so favorite ice cream flavor? Strawberry. Okay. Biggest pet peeve? Not just in medicine, just in life. Repetition. That's a good one. That is a Ask good one. Ask the same question again. Yeah. What is... No, I'm just <laughs> But isn't that funny that I am... I've spent my life in a profession where repetition is critical right but when i get home don't ask me to repeat (laughs) but patterns are different than repetition i would argue that your 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 daily life is less repetitive than plenty of other professions true yeah what is your favorite hobby reading okay what's the last thing you've read that you enjoyed i just finished a book by harlan copen and um, he writes uh, kind of murder mysteries, but he has very, very complex character development. Okay. And the book's name was Win, as in W-I-N, which was the name of a person, not mm-hmm. winning. And it was wonderful. Are you generally interested in crime dramas? And, and Is it fiction or more towards nonfiction? If I'm reading fiction, I tend to read crime dramas. Crime dramas. Okay, fair enough. I... Um, as a side note, I recently watched Night Stalker documentary on Netflix. Have you watched that? I have. Tell me what you think. I liked it. You liked it? Yeah. I have found that uh, Netflix is taking a bigger part of my life than <laughs> possibly it should, uh, <laughs> starting about last March. Huh. Nice. Yeah. Once <laughs> then, huh? Hmm. Yeah. I um, actually spoke to my parents about that because I wasn't born yet when Night Stalker was, it was what, late 80s, right? Mm-hmm. And my parents were freaked out when that whole thing occurred. So have you watched it yet, Dr. Dober? I, I live in a world of fantasy. I don't watch any criminal anything. It just terrifies me and I don't sleep well. Sorry, I have no idea what you're talking about. No, no. But it's, uh, but yeah, my parents were talking about how like a lot of their neighbors were boarding up their windows and just, yeah, it was insane. I've always heard about the Night Stalker, but I just never knew how much fear it drove into Southern California because that's where he committed most of his murders. Mm-hmm. So it was just so crazy. Crazy. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, it was a great documentary. I'm, it was. Yeah. I'm not trying to plug it completely for you guys, but if you're you are interested, it's a great one. Well, actually, let's, let me ask you that next question. Then, what are your Netflix recommendations for crime stuff? What do you, do you have any? Well, you know, I kind of like the British crime dramas, and I just finished a series called Marcella, M A R C E L L A, and uh, she is an unlikable <laughs> but very brilliant detective. Oh, so then kind of like... Well, Dexter wasn't a detective, though. Did you watch Dexter? No, I did not. What what, what channel was Dexter on? Do you remember? Was it Bravo? I don't remember. TBS? Do you know, Josh? I don't know. The whole premise of the show is that he was born with this innate kind of need to want to kill, to murder. But he was able to channel that into something well i don't want to say a positive but but, um he decided to go after people that had committed crimes or have done other murders themselves so basically criminals and became this vigilante that decided to take justice in his own hands and it's an interesting drama i just thought maybe you might be interested in it but well i might have to try it yeah it's called dexter they're actually bringing back another season sorry this isn't about a crime drama podcast (laughs) we should probably move on actually my last question i think this is the most important question of the entire interview because this is very near and dear to my heart birthday cake or birthday pie birthday cake okay fair enough dr dupper 
what's I, I, how, I, what's the right answer? Um, <laughs> it's clearly cake. Oh, I'm the odd <laughs> person out. <laughs> but, really? but may I say that mm. I have ordered in my younger years a mm. banana cream pie for my birthday. Mm. That's a really good exception. Yeah, yeah. But cake. I get. Okay, I know. I know it's traditional, and I get it. But I think I've just had very bad cake in my life. Just not moist, dry, and okay. pie. Just just the opposite. I'm gonna of that. make you a cake. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm You're really there? kind of disappointed that you haven't <laughs> haven't asked me the question that would get students really to the top of my list: cats versus dogs. Oh, oh. That's, that's, yeah. Of course. How do we not? Wait. So what's we the answer? <laughs> Cats. <laughs> you hear that, Matt students? It's cats. Yeah, it's cats. All righty. And my cat and I um, each gained two pounds during <laughs> the uh, pandemic. And I will say that I think I'm wearing it a little better than my cat. <laughs> That's funny. You know, last thing I'll mention before we end the podcast, but uh, I was going to ask you, and I think this might be for another podcast episode, but kind of what did you learn about yourself and what were your experiences like in March when the pandemic first hit? And uh, Dr. Arabian was here. I think it was last week, Josh, or last week, right? I think we're going to probably have a different roundtable for that. But I think I had a lot of emotions walking into my first shift in COVID pod. That was pretty scary. But you can, you know, talk a little bit about it if you'd like. But I would like to have you come back with Dr. Raven as well, too. And we would appreciate your input, you know, your stories and kind of what you went through. Well, I have always, I think, tried to find humor uh, to cope with things in life. Yeah. And I have to admit that I was frightened. Yeah. Um, the humor that I found mm-hmm. was that on Friday... There in that mid-March, was it like the 12th or the 13th, that the CDC said that I was old and I needed to stay home. And then on Monday, they decided I was not old and I could go to work. And on Tuesday again, they made me old again. (laughs) We had a clerkship subcommittee meeting that week, and I remember we talked through that. And so Mm. I went to my boss, who's a wonderful boss, Mm. but kind of serious. And I said, Dr. Ophi, the CDC told me I was old on Friday, (laughs) not old on Monday, and old today. May I go home? (laughs) And in his wonderful, accented, quiet voice, he said... I do not see you as old. (laughs) (laughs) And that just thrilled my heart. (laughs) But on a more serious note, I could not, I I truly believe that I would have not gotten through this pandemic with normal mental health Mm. without my job, which is students, residents, and my college. Yeah, we, um, you guys think that we're all about hustle and bustle and work, but sometimes you forget that we're in medical education for a reason. It's because we're fulfilled by it. We love teaching you guys, and it's why we come to work, and it's why I come to work. So yeah. don't forget that. To, to have complete social isolation yeah. without the wonderful experiences we have with our peers, 
and colleagues, I I cannot imagine survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's a sneak peek to our next episode, hopefully with Dr. Arabian as well, sitting here at the round table and uh, a few other folks. But uh, Dr. Craig, thank you so much. This was such a lovely conversation. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I'm sure Thanks. the med students will love all these bits and pearls. And I'm sure they're going to be playing this on repeat right before your clerkship <laughs> <laughs> in third year. Any clerkship, it would be useful for anyone. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, uh-huh. to be honest. Yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was, it was really, it was a lot of fun. I love it. Thank you so much. And uh, if you guys have any questions, any suggestions or feedback for our episode for our Untangled Minds, please feel free to email us. Um, We'll hopefully get back to you. And uh, until next time, take care, guys. Goodbye. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please email us at oumpodcast at cusm.org. That's oumpodcast at cusm.org.